However, in a more complicated and severe injury, like an ACL, um, no, I don't think we complicate it um, in that that type of an injury or whether it's a grade three hamstring injury, you know, we do need to be really systematic and be thinking very, um, very broad in how we're preparing the injury site, but then the athlete holistically um, and addressing all underlying risk factors, um, using as an opportunity to improve physical capacities and things that may be potential weaknesses in that athlete. Welcome to the Pacey Performance Podcast, the podcast that dives into the philosophies, ideas and practices of some of the best practitioners in high performance sport. So today's guest, Simon Harris, has one of the top five performing articles on Sportsmith since we launched in August, and that's developing a rehab running framework for soft tissue injuries. So it's that article, because it's performed so well, that we use as a basis for today's discussion. So we have a little chat around hamstring injuries, we have a little chat around calf injuries, and how people can use Simon's framework to navigate the return to play process for both them injuries. So a really interesting podcast for strength and conditioning coaches who are leaning towards the rehab side, but also physiotherapists who have returned to play as part of their remit as well. So it's such a good episode. Simon is the Head of Strength and Condition at New South Wales Institute of Sport, and he's recently taken over from a good friend of mine, Alex Natera. And if he's taken over Alex's role, because Alex has got promoted, Simon, trust me, must be and is a top, top practitioner. This episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast is sponsored by Hawking Dynamics. Hawking Dynamics is the world's first wireless force plate testing system. The Hawking Dynamics system is built for coaches to test in the real world, not just in the lab. Capture reliable data on all your athletes in a matter of minutes and monitor their progress in the cloud from anywhere in the world. The Hawking Dynamics force plates are wireless, portable and trusted by teams at every level of sport. Integrating force plates into your athlete monitoring program has never been easier or more affordable. If you want to see the Hawking Dynamics force plate system in action, Head over to their website, hawkindynamics.com, to schedule a demo or follow them on Twitter at hawkindynamics. Also sponsoring this episode is Play. Play is the leader in high-performance athletic flooring and strength equipment globally. So with offices in the US, Australia and the UK, Play provides an end-to-end experience by collaborating with organisations through their own proprietary formula to create world-class environments for coaches and athletes. Plays Achieve 18mm Rubber and Attack Turf have been at the cornerstone of elite training facilities for now over a decade with the addition of the new Icon X rack range. Play are once again set to elevate the industry. On the 23rd of April 2022, Play will be hosting their first UK lab of the year in collaboration with Loughborough University. Play will be joined by some exceptional speakers from elite sport, industry and academia with a huge breadth of knowledge and experience. Listeners and supporters of Pace Performance Podcast are able to obtain an exclusive 20% discount using the code SPORTSMITH20 when registering at playacademy.com forward slash play hyphen labs hyphen Loughborough. Have you tried Hytro? the wearable blood flow restriction solution that is unlocking better recovery in athletes. While many have used BFR for rehab, Hytro are demonstrating the huge impact BFR can have on recovery and performance when used for post-exercise recovery. Through their innovative design, BFR straps are integrated into shorts and t-shirts, allowing BFR to be delivered to groups of athletes safely and more conveniently than ever before. Check them out at hytro.com or email warren at hytro.com to find out how Hytro can give your athletes a competitive edge. Without further ado, over to the episode with Simon. Simon Harris, welcome to the Pace Performance Podcast. Thank you for giving up some of your morning to have a chat. Oh, thanks for having me, Rob. 
It's a pleasure. It's a pleasure. Uh, you, like I was saying before, you have produced probably one of the top five ranking articles on Sportsmith. So we're going to use that as a bit of a jumping off point today for a running rehab framework chat. However, before we dive into that, would you mind just giving us a bit of a background on you? Because I know there's been some changes yeah. recently, but I'm sure there's a there's always a backstory. Everyone's always got a backstory. Yeah, sure. Um, well, I'm an S&C coach, firstly, and then secondly, a sports scientist. Um, I've always worked in contact-based field sports, so I've actually progressed across all four contact codes that are offering in Australia, rugby league, rugby union, rugby sevens, and then AFL. Um, and along that journey, which is around 13 or 14 years, for nearly half of that six years or so, I've been a rehab coordinator um, in various places that I've been, um, which is, you know, obviously how I got that kind of expertise in and the idea around, you know, a rehab running framework and so on. Um, but recently I have had a career change, as you said, and I've moved across into the institute system. Um, you know, with Olympic and Paralympic sports, and I'm now the the head of S&C at NSWIS or the New South Wales Institute of Sport. How's that transition to an institute from team sports? Uh, it's it was so different mm. um, initially. Just you know, just understanding the lay of the land and like there's so many more inputs from different sports and different funding bodies, and understanding all the interactions in that space. Um, and then just the day-to-day pace is, is very different. Um, you know, you, and now instead of looking at the next month or the next upcoming season, you, you're also thinking, okay, this upcoming season, but what about next year of the Com Games, or which is actually this year, and the next Olympics now in three years' time and so forth. So it's just a bigger picture of the world, I would say. So are you over at the Com Games in, is it July, Com Games? Yeah, it is. Um, no, I won't be going. Okay. Um, but a, a whole lot of the athletes that we service here will be off to there. Of course. So your your position is overseeing the S the S and C coaches that are, live with different sports, or do you have a, yeah, exactly. an allocated sport as well? Um, both. So okay. yeah. there's a there's a fairly large team here. I think there's a, eleven of us or twelve um, that then service fifteen plus sports plus a whole lot of. Um, individual athlete scholarships. Uh, and then at the moment I'm with water polo, uh, the women's water polo program. Yeah. Which is really enjoyable. Basically it's underwater rugby to me. Um, so there's a little <laughs> bit of comfort in there. That makes it sound so cool. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm just, I'm learning. Um, but at some point, you know, I will, with the new role change, I'll transition out of that a little bit and pick up another sport or two, depending on how that all fits with the other staff. And some big shoes to fill in this new role, as we've been discussed yeah. beforehand. Yeah, yeah, Alex Natera, um, you know, very big shoes to fill. Thankfully, he's my boss still, um, so he can point me in the right direction if I if I get off track. Nice. So what what's last one on on the background stuff? What's after Com Games? What's the next big? What's the next big um, milestone? Well, I guess for you. Well, I suppose with this. There's so many different sports and so much going on. Um, for me, it's probably less about what competitions are coming up. Um, and the big focus for me is, I suppose, making sure that there's a, a good system in place within our S&C department that we're, you know, singing off the same page and are doing things in a way that, um, you know, there can be some kind of consistency and legacy after the people that are here will leave eventually at some point. Um, so I think, uh, like I, I enjoy systems and and different things that can help, I suppose, guide the way we work. Um, so I think I've put a fair bit of focus towards that and and getting some of those things up and running. Sounds good. Right, let's dive into the the rehab running framework. So sure. first off, the process that you went through. And anyone that hasn't checked it out, go on Sportsmith and have a little read or a long read because it's a it's a it's Pretty, pretty meaty, but there's, there's so much there. So in terms of the process you went through to develop that, and we'll get into what it is in a second, but the process you went through to develop that, just give us a bit of a, an insight into that. Yeah, I suppose um, 
So when I first moved into a, a full-time S&C role um, and had a little bit of, you know, responsibility in rehab, but not too much, I was exposed to more of a recipe-based approach to returning athletes to, to running and getting them back to their sport. You know, like follow this step, then this step, and then this step, and then this step, you know, there was very little scope to go outside those those steps. Um, and then the next iteration that I was exposed to was maybe a little bit more of a menu, you know, where you pick from, you know, certain categories, but it was still very constrained into that little box. Um, which reflecting on, you know, preparing for today, you know, like that was fantastic to learn and like, you know, understand, okay, how might you just generally progress someone through rehab and a few, I suppose, you know, just how to, how you could do it. Um, but I suppose once you get a little bit more understanding of rehab and how you can progress different injuries and also when your, your understanding of the sport or sports you're working in increases, you start to find those recipes and menus as too constraining. Um, and so that's kind of how I suppose this framework came about is that I wanted the, the ability to individualize a little bit and put my flavor upon, you know, the, the recipes and the menus that, that were there. Um, so I kind of just went about, you know, in a sim similar way to which all strength and conditioning coaches would be thinking about their regression and progression um, system for a, a certain exercise, whether that's a, how do they teach someone how to do a, a good squat or a good hinge or so forth. Started to go with the same process of how would I progress or regress someone in terms of how they were running and returning to run post-injury. Um, so there, that was probably the start of it, um, was give me in my head how I would regress and progress something, but give me the choice that allowed me the creative freedom to, if this athlete needed this, I could do so. Or if this particular athlete, you know, like from a psychological perspective, really didn't enjoy doing this, I knew I could also do this, this and this and still achieve the same goal. That's That seems so intuitive, but it also makes me think, in terms of the education of a strength and conditioning coach, when it comes to rehab, because that, no matter what setting and people have hundreds of people that have been on the podcast have have mentioned the same thing that that fits under their remit but from an education point of view that's something that is almost missed and people catch up during later in the career with a an extra certification or an extra master's or just learn on the job there seems to be quite a, a gap there oh there's an, an enormous gap um and i was exactly like everyone else the first time I had to, I was told, oh, can you take this player for his, their first rehab run? I was so out of my depth. And I, I've, you know, I think there may have been a few mistakes in those early days that I'd like to take back. What do you think the issues are for not having something like this in place that gives you a structure, but also allows you the flexibility to manipulate certain things depending on the various unforeseen things that happen during a rehab? Yeah, I think the things that go wrong when you don't have something in place, and the biggest one is the consequence of, of a negative reloading response. So whether you're exacerbating the symptoms of that injury or in the worst case, having a recurrence of that injury during rehab. Um, and, and there's a balance and it's you're walking a tightrope between, particularly if you're in pro sport and there's a demand to get the player back, um, you're walking a really tight line between being too conservative and too aggressive. Um, so having a way in which you work um, and, and some way to guide your decision-making along the way is really important. Um, and if you align, I suppose, your, what's your framework with the, the various stages of rehab, you know, which are based in, I suppose, the pathophysiology, physiology of tissue healing and and understanding the, the forces that a healing tissue may be able to withstand, then you're starting to align the two goals and go, okay, I understand where from a healing perspective where we're coming from, I'm 
getting more understanding of what the other practitioners are involved, the, the medical practitioners are involved, like what are they thinking around this time point of the injury? And then I'm also overlaying that with, well, what am I thinking from a physical preparation perspective? You know, how can I align these three things at once and have an appropriate bandwidth of, okay, if we operate in this space at that time, we should be okay. You you started off on the in the article with a couple of nice tables with the uh, the color coded from left to right as as the loading progressed, but also the the healing progressed as well. Would you be able to just I suppose build out what that that kind of description that I'm trying to paint in people's heads what that looks like? Yeah, yeah. So I suppose I mean for me the terminology is less important. Um, it says it's you you've got your couple of phases whether it's four or five or three it doesn't matter. Um, but essentially, you're in a period initially of let's call it the acute stage, where really number one goal is protect the injury site and ensure there's no further damage and allow the healing tissue to to do its thing, scar up, and so forth. Um, you know, where you're still doing, you're still training in that period, but you're definitely thinking, I, I don't want to do anything that's going to disrupt the healing process. Um, and then you take another step down the line, and you go, okay there's been enough healing that we can now reintroduce some some load um, and what that is is you know different to every sport whether that's load in a resistance training exercise whether that's loading them to return to swimming in the in the water whether that's loading to return to run and so forth but it's a, a very graded process of introducing a little bit of load to the tissue can the tissue handle it yes take the next step and so forth um so you go through that period where you're kind of gradually just increasing what they're doing and what they can handle. And then you have this period that, you know, it's a piece of string on how long it is, depending on the injury, but where you're going, okay, can we recondition or we need to now recondition that athlete to withstand the demands of their sport. Um, and so that's where the real piece where you're, you're always are thinking in the back of your mind, well, okay, we need to be cautious of, whatever area was injured but we're also thinking well how is that athlete prepared holistically to perform their sport um, and then we move through that stage and go okay we're reconditioning them now let's have a period again a piece of string about how long this period is for a stabilizing performance and so when they're returning to play or returning to train they're actually ready to perform and and they're not just going out there and and everyone's fingers are crossed, hoping that they'll survive the next training session or the next match. You gave an example in the article. Again, I'll, I'll keep referring back to the article because I'm using that as a bit of a framework for, for us to have a little chat today. But a, a bit of an example, uh, you used, I think, grade two soft tissue injuries as the example for the down the article. Just using that framework that you've that you've just described there, can you just kind of overlay that example on that on that particular framework? Is that is that possible? Yeah, yeah, sure. So yeah, in the article, I used an example. So we had enough over the course of a couple of years of grade two hamstring injuries and grade two calf injuries. Um, so I suppose for, if we were looking at those two injuries, um, the acute stage would be somewhere in the vicinity of of seven to 10 days um, where we're, we're really looking, as I said, to protect the injury site. Um, and then throughout that period of time, you know, we're working on re-establishing range of motion, minimising any swelling, um, looking for for pain to go away, um, and looking for strength, you know, general strength to return, um, whether that's via a, a clinical assessment with the physios or or some kind of you know quite basic assessment of strength in the in the gym. Um, and then there'll be let's call it the return to run. Um, probably coincides maybe just after the the start of the load introduction phase, you know, because we would have introduced load in the gym-based setting firstly. Um, you know, kind of the strength and resistance training stuff is kind of one to two steps ahead of the return to running, um, if you can picture that. And, yeah, we return to run, and there would be a period of, uh, you know, potentially a week to 10 days of, the load introduction for running. And then there might be 
a seven to 10 day window or of reconditioning slash performance phases. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. So using, again, using one of the examples that you used in the article, which was um, was hamstring framework. That, that's right, isn't it? That's what we, that's the, the example that you used. Yeah, you did. Oh. Yeah, used an example. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. So one thing that the first thing that I wanted to ta- uh, dive into was the, the, I suppose that one of the first things that comes along, which is running gate. Is there anything just starting from, I suppose, step one, would you better take us through what that looks like? in terms of examples of, of, of drills that you may use in that very, very early stage and how that would progress. And then one thing I've got written down here is how you determine entry and exit criteria. I know it's not a, okay, today we're doing this and everything then will change tomorrow because everything's aligned. I'm guessing that there's obviously certain things are aligned, certain things progress, certain things stay where they are, and it, it kind of, it's it's always evolving. But what entry and exit criteria do you use to to move along the the framework mm, sure two questions um, there sorry yeah two questions there no problem um so i think if we look at reintroducing running gate um and i'm absolutely no expert in improving someone's running gate in the way others are um but the way i think about it is again that i suppose graded progression of well if an athlete has to sprint maximally in their sport, then initially they need to start walking, jogging, running, striding, sprinting. Um, so it's a really systematic process to return to those those things. Um, so initially, post a, a soft tissue injury and a hamstring, um, early on, you know, it might be day one, day two after the injury, we're maintaining through a range of walking-based running drills, um, whether that's a an A-walk with a, you know, stepping over the ankle height or over the shin height or over the knee and kind of like a, a dribble walk, um, you know, and just doing a number of repetitions, you know, very low volume, once or twice a day in that real early stage, um, then progressing to those same drills in a, in a running you know, movement. So it's a, a dribble over ankles, a, a running dribble or dribble over, over shins, dribble over knees and so forth. Um, almost as this, this surrogate before actually going to jog. There's these running drills and running mechanics, you know, they, they look very similar to actual running gait. Um, potentially the range of the motion, depending on the drill you choose, are reduced, not going to stress the tissue as much. Um, and you can, I suppose, build a little bit of confidence there in the athlete and in the practitioner that if this athlete can tolerate a certain amount of, of running drills, then they should be ready to, to do a, a light jog. Um, and I suppose maybe that's a good jumping off point into some of that those criteria to determine when someone might be ready to run. Um, so the way that, that we've done it, would be, I suppose, you're pairing like the clinical side of of the objective markers with the functional. Um, so return to run, the, the physios would have their criteria, which would be something like there's no pain on contraction or in, in palpation. Um, they've re-established full range of motion um, and they may have a clinical measure of strength. Um, you know, it might be an isometric contraction. For example, again, it might be a handheld dynamometer or it might be using the, the Nord board to do some kind of isometric just to establish have they got, let's call it sufficient strength to return to run um, as opposed to returning to previous strength levels. Um, and then with the f- the functional kind of assessment and marker, it's, well, that was, could they tolerate walking running drills? Could they tolerate running drills that are running um could they tolerate some entry level strength training um and some some low lower load eccentric contractions and isometric contractions and so forth all right done all those things let's start running and then along the way it's it's almost like in my opinion 
when you're looking at a soft tissue injury, particularly grade one and grade two, because it's a real tight turnaround, like you're only talking kind of three to four weeks, you will have these key objective tests along the way, but you use function as your, your main driver for progression, um, which is why having a, like a nice graded progression along the way for different components is useful. Because you you know it's okay they can handle now a, a light jog, um, whether that's a, a twelve kilometers an hour, fourteen kilometers an hour, and so forth. You know they've handled, let's say it's a kilometer of that type of work. All right, maybe the next session they can handle jogging a little bit faster, and then okay they've done that for a couple a session or two. Can they now handle to to run at eighteen kilometers an hour for eighteen, nineteen, twenty k's an hour? Yep, they've done that. Now let's go. Can they do easy striding? Now they've handled easy striding. That might be 70 to 75% of their maximum speed. All right, now we can start to push towards sprinting and, and looking at those percentages above 80%. Before you go into that high end stuff, is there anything critical that is, yes, functional, but gives you extra confidence, whether it be some sort of, I don't know, uh, objective testing that allows you to go, okay, we're definitely ready. I'm not going to get into a situation where we're going back two weeks. Sure. Yeah. So there's there's probably two main things there. Um, there's respecting the healing time for a lot of these injuries. And so in particular for a hamstring, a grade one, we'd be thinking that Anything before kind of that two week mark, so day 14, it's a real critical period where the injured site needs to heal up and scar up pretty well before we expose it to, to kind of those higher end forces that would happen in, in running fast. So there'd be that, like waiting, you've got to wait a little bit. Um, but then also pairing that with an objective marker of, you know, we would use a, a Nordic as a, um, an assessment of eccentric hamstring strength um, because that's, we have a lot of information on that and I don't want to get into the Nordic debate. We'll go um, there again. I'm, neither, <laughs> I'm neither here nor there on that, um, but it's, it's a good assessment to give you a, a good guide of have they returned to their previous level of strength. Um, and so we'd be looking at returning to, you know, within a, a nice ballpark of their previous best within, within a, a recency period, whether that's the previous 12 months or so forth. Um, and then having, you know, an asymmetry side to side that that's less than 10 to 15%. Is that asymmetry a crucial thing for you? Uh, good question. Um, yes and no. It's probably, it's not necessarily a, um, a major stop early on and if they're still like if they're 16 17 percent you know at day 14 for example you know and in everything else they're tolerating all the functional things that we're doing on the field and in the gym um, they haven't had any um, any sign of a negative reloading response so they're you know from one session to another they're, they're pulling up quite well you know, I might say, okay, we can still take this next step, but we'll proceed with a bit of caution. Um, and, you know, that next step where if, let's say their asymmetry was, was only 5%, the step might be that size, it's a little bit bigger. And whereas in this case, it's a smaller step. Um, but before they return to, to full training and definitely return to play, that I would want to see that asymmetry go down to less than 10%. Um, I suppose the only, I mean, consideration would be with all the information we had on that player, prior to injury, did they have a big asymmetry? Uh, you know, we had an example of a player who was um, a previous ACL reconstruction where they'd used the hamstring tendon for the graft. Um, and so that player never, even upon 12 months return to play, they still had like a 20 to 25% asymmetry measured on a Nordic. Um, you know, so if that player had a hamstring injury, for example, I, I couldn't possibly hold that criteria for that player. 
So we're just going to take a very quick break in the chat with Simon. Hope you enjoyed part one. So over in part two, we have a little chat around the differences between calf and hamstring injuries and how prescription differs. Then we have a little look at layering resistance training over this rehab running framework and where isometrics fit. So super, super interesting part two coming up. This episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast is sponsored by Omega Wave. Omega Wave is the only non-invasive at rest technology on the market that analyzes readiness to train via both brain and cardiac analysis. Using DC potential and HRV to understand your brain's energy level and autonomic nervous system balance allows you to use objective data on recovery and readiness that in turn helps you to truly individualize your training and thus optimize performance. Omega Wave also measures ECG from the V6 position. This data can be used by the medical profession to check cardiac health on a frequent basis. The measurement takes only four minutes to perform and results are visualized in an intuitive way thanks to our windows of trainability concept. Omega Wave is used by hundreds of elite sports, military and law enforcement organizations. Omega Wave are also the official partner of the UFC Performance Institute. Learn more about Omega Wave by visiting their website omegawave.com and their social media channels. And this episode of the podcast is also sponsored by Fusion Sport. Fusion Sport is a global leader in human performance solutions for elite sport, military, and workplace health. Fusion Sport's data management and analytics platform, Smarterbase, is designed to provide elite human performance organizations with a one-stop shop solution for the holistic management of their teams. Highly configurable and capable of allowing the integration of other systems and wearables into its operations, Smarterbase enables organizations to capture, manage, analyze, report, and share data across the whole organization. When you adopt the Smarterbase human performance platform, you're choosing more than just a product, you're choosing a technology partner and a team of consultants who have worked with some of the world's most elite performance organizations. Smarterbase is trusted by the world's best in human performance, including the National Basketball Association, the NBA, the LA Lakers, US Special Operations Command, Australian Institute of Sport and US Soccer. Visit fusionsport.com forward slash smarterbase to learn more about how Smarterbase can help turn your data into a winning advantage. And now back to the interview with Simon. So just going back to the framework, we've built up to potentially 80% plus. At what point and what criteria, I mean, we've touched on the criteria a little bit, what does that next step look like? Getting up to getting up to full max speed and then potentially introducing some decelerations and change direction evasion stuff. Yeah, yeah. So in the article, I kind of outlined the way in which I progress running speed really systematically early on, up until around that seventy-five to eighty percent of top end speed. Um, in that, I use you know whether it's hundred meter repeat efforts or sixty meter repeat efforts, and having a set time to do those efforts corresponding to a, a an expected or an average velocity over the, the distance and then an expected peak. I use that really systematically to rebuild the confidence of the athlete, but really importantly, their awareness of what a certain running speed feels like. Um, so that when we do get above 75 to 80%, I, I'm able to have a conversation with them. I want you to go 2% faster than that today. Uh, you know, or, or, or to that previous rep, it's it's one percent more, it's you know three percent more, it's five percent more, and so forth. Um, and obviously, each athlete will be different in how well they can regulate those increases. Um, but doing having that really systematic progression allows me that really tight bandwidth to progress it across repetitions within a session, and then also across sessions. Um, and so I would, particularly with a hamstring, make some really gradual jumps from 75 to 80 to 85. Because um, we know that as running speed increases for some for someone, the amount of work or forces that the hamstrings need to produce and absorb goes up, um, which is why a hamstring injury can run at day three or day four 
often because it it has less involvement and it doesn't have to do as much work at lower speeds. Um, but once you start to get above 80, 85%, it's, it's really working and you have to be really cautious of what you're exposing the injury to. Um, so to come back to your question, once we've got to 80%, that may be around day 14 to, to 17, 18. Um, then if it's a grade one, typically we'll hold off as long as we possibly can, but not too long before they go above 90%. Uh, it, again, you, you, this is where you're balancing the risk versus reward, aggressive versus conservative and that tightrope and go, okay, if we just give them a little bit longer when we put, take them up to this level, they're going to have had an opportunity to redevelop the strength that they need in that injured area to tolerate it. Um, but then also balancing well from a, a reconditioning and performance perspective before they return to play, we want to make sure they've been into those above 90, 95% zones on a number of occasions. Um, and this these is are, where that tightrope comes in. And these are the balances. This is the balance that you will have had at the Giants when you've got a game Sunday and that, and you're, you're pushing because he's the best player. So it's always that, that tightrope. Is he ready? Can we expose him at the right particular time? At the right particular um, number of days in, yeah. So it's yeah. I suppose it's always that balance, isn't it? Mm-hmm. So in terms of we're getting up to that top end side, how do we transition or work alongside that with change direction, evasion, more dare I say sport specific kind of movements? Yeah. So. With all, with um you know running gait and and max velocity progression, and then change direction and acceleration deceleration, they they are progressed at a similar rate. Um, so you know I'm not waiting for them to be able to run fast and then bring in the acceleration deceleration components. Um, if anything, the change direction and the accel and decel get progressed a little bit faster than the maximum velocity stuff with a hamstring injury, um, and so. In, in, it's a little bit harder in change of direction and accel and decel to have a really clear percentage of progression. Um, so it starts to look like a little bit more we're using descriptives. We're going, well, these are light intensity, medium intensity, moderate to high intensity and high intensity. Um, and the way I go about increasing that intensity is manipulating the size of the drill that they are that they're doing um and so starting small small spaces small distances doesn't allow a high velocity of change of direction or or for the accel or decel um so it, i suppose it constrains the athlete at whatever period of, of rehab you're in to go well if i make the drill a certain size um with with these constraints and then also give the athlete i want you to go at light intensity whether that's 50 60 percent of what they understand and that constrains it at that time they go okay now we've opened up the drill a little bit so we're going to get a little bit more speed um, into a change of direction which is going to increase the the force demand for that change direction Um, but then it's still say to them okay i still want you to hold this at at a medium intensity we're we're not going you know full on just yet Uh, and then as you progress through the the rehab running framework, sizes get bigger and we bring in more constraints that start to make it look a little bit more like the sport, whether that's, you know, very um, artificial constraints such as adding in a stopping zone for a deceleration or having multiple colored cones and the the athlete responding to my call or um, a visual cue via like an app you can use and that gives you the different colors like randomly. or it's bringing in a coach or a practitioner to be a, a person that reacts and then they react off the coach. Um, and then finally, the last step is, okay, can we bring in more than one coach, bring in a couple of players or, or multiple coaches to do some simulated training drills, um, which are you know modified and constrained based on the, I suppose, the rules we put in place for that drill. Again, the sizing, um, the, the conversation we have with the athlete beforehand to say, we're doing this drill, 
this I know you want to do this for this purpose for your your sports skill preparation, your technical preparation, but we're doing it for this reason from a physical perspective. Um, and the, these are the things that I want you to do in this drill. Perform the drill or drills, and that's the, the next logical step towards going back towards um, training with the team. That was one of my questions, actually. How much input along the way, and I suppose it'll, it'll differ depending on the athlete themselves, but how much input are you asking from them in terms of how quickly you're progressing? And I mentioned about we've got a game on Sunday, so things may be sped up and are slowed down. But how much input are you getting? How are you actually getting that input from the athlete? Oh, so oh, they have a, a huge say um, in their progression. Um, in terms of, you know, we'll have conversation with, with this is where you are right now. This is what we're seeing with you in the gym this is what we're seeing with some of your objective testing and so forth like we think you you should be able to do this on this day and then do this and then play um you know are you happy with that plan um you know is there anything you'd like to change like obviously that within a tight time frame you can't change too much um but the athlete might say look just on that day i just if i can do this on that day i'll be happy and it'll give me the confidence to play um so most definitely you'll, we will adjust some of the content within a session to make sure the athlete gets what they need as long as it fits within the parameters of where they're at in that rehab journey. Mm-hmm. I don't use, like I said before, I use the example of the calf and the hamstring and you did some comparisons and, and presented some data uh, really nicely on there as well. Can you just talk to us a little bit about the differences in terms of how you would progress and uh, and regress those different the different injuries um, as you presented in the article. Yeah, so I think it comes down to like one main difference. Um, and essentially, as I mentioned just a moment ago with hamstrings, um, but basically the forces that are required to be produced and absorbed during running um, for for the plantar flexors or the calf, they have a, a really high force requirement just from entry level jogging, slow speed jogging. Um, it's really quite high, particularly the soleus muscle um, from you know slow running. And then it does go up to a certain level, um, but it, it's quite high from early days. Um, whereas with the hamstring or the hip extensors, they're less involved or have a less um, of a force requirement during slower running. Um, so the main difference is with the hamstring, as running speed goes up, essentially the amount of work and force that needs to be produced and absorbed by those muscles goes up. Um, so you you get with a hamstring, you need to delay running fast a little bit longer. With whereas whereas with a calf, and this is where the differences in the, um, what I highlight in that article around the day of return to run, with a calf you wait a little bit longer. Um, you, you, I suppose you're waiting for a little bit more healing of that tissue, give it a little bit more time to scar up and, and get its its strength back um, before returning them to such a high load activity that starts with um, easy entry level jogging. Um, it's quite high from a force perspective and, and the, what has to happen and be absorbed at that area. Um, whereas with the hamstring, you might have a hamstring that could run at day two or day three post injury and tolerate a substantial amount of volume early on, um, but you just have to wait from a, a speed perspective. So that's they're kind of the main differences in in just from a rehab running perspective and why you would wait a little bit longer for a calf before running, but you can actually accelerate them a little bit quicker um, because the it, you know as I said the calf musculature starts working pretty early in slow speed running and it does go up, but it doesn't go up enormously as running speed increases. So you can kind of kick them on a little bit more. Is there any particular nervous points in a, in a calf rehab? Like there would be in a, like there would be in a hamstring getting up to that top end. Is there any nervous points in the, in the calf rehab that would mean that you have a particular objective measure again to give you that confidence like you might do with the the nordic uh is there anything that replicable in the with the calf 
Yeah, the calf is a is a lot harder to to assess and and have a really good measure um, of strength. Um, we did play around with a range of isometric tests, whether that's in a seated position or a standing, um, using force plates to get an idea of you know their peak force and side to side differences and so forth. Um, if it was a significant calf injury, like potentially a grade two, or most definitely like a a grade three we'd also have some kind of reactive strength measure such as a, a drop jump or a repeated hopping test on the force plates and getting a, an idea there. Um, but with a just a, let's call it a simple grade one calf or even a grade two calf that doesn't have any involvement of any of the tendons that run through, we're probably most nervous when we get to a certain session volume. Um, Again, harping on about it, but the calf needs to work so hard during all speeds of running, particularly the slower end speeds. So volume can be the thing that brings you unstuck early days. So when we get to a session and, you know, these AFL players, like their game loads, like their game average is somewhere between 12 to 14 Ks that they have to cover in a game. And that's not even including the warm ups that they do. So, you know, you're talking that maybe a 15 to 16 K dose in a day. So when we get to somewhere around the five to six kilometer mark in a, a training session, that's the volume that will often bring a calf unstuck if they're not going to tolerate the progressions that you've done. So it, with it, the way we approached a calf was delay the volume, progress the competency of function, whether that's, that's running fast or accelerating, decelerating, change your direction, you know, sport-specific skills are still progressing those things, but just in terms of the overall volume that they are needing to do in the first three to four sessions of returning to run, we were super cautious um, and would keep that well below that, you know, a pretty arbitrary number, that five to six K mark. Um, and I reckon if an athlete didn't run 12 to 14 Ks in their game, that arbitrary figure may be even lower than that. It might be at three or four Ks um, for someone who might only run six or seven kilometres in their sport. One thing I want to next ask you is overlaying the um, resistance training on top of this. That didn't touch on what well, we did mention this in the, in the article, but maybe um, not loads, but it'd be great to kind of run back through that framework as well and just piece together how resistance training develops in that in that calf and hamstring examples as well mm. yes i suppose like you know what i said earlier though the rehab running framework came from i suppose what we all do as strength and conditioning coaches in having a regression and progression continuum in different categories of exercises and movements and so forth um, so in, in a similar way to which the rehab running categories progress for each injury, the calf, hamstring, quad, you would have a, a regression progression continuum of exercises and, and movements that I suppose, you know, that you would align based on your experiences and understanding of, of those exercises, the load, whether lower load to start with, higher load, higher rate of loading um, or complexity of the movement along the way. And then, so you have those regressions, progressions sorted. And then with resistance training within rehab, it kind of runs one to two steps ahead of the return to running. And that you go, okay, like real simple, can they tolerate a certain amount of load in a slow movement, you know, with a really slow contraction velocity? Can they now tolerate forces with a higher rate of loading, you know, starting to bring some speed in the movement, whether that's some introductory plyometrics or jumping, whether that's, um, you know, potentially like um, a faster resistance training movement, like a, with a quicker eccentric or a quicker concentric action in the movement. And you're doing those things along the way. And they're giving you that indication along with the early stage part of rehab running, talking about the running drills and running mechanics. You know, okay, we're starting to see that a bit of a picture here, athlete can tolerate some running gait in running drills. They can tolerate a certain amount of loading in slower velocity movements and they can tolerate 
and they're showing they can handle and not pull up poorly from exercises that have a higher rate of loading, um, we have some confidence to get them back running. And then along that journey from the returning to running, you're looking to progress, just keep the resistance training side, just a step ahead of running. Um, so that potentially you are, you know, inverted commas, returning to normal resistance training well before you're running at 80% of your top end speed, for example. Do you think this side of it, in terms of the resistance side of a rehab, is something that maybe people think is more complicated than it is, or when it's just good strength and conditioning principles, but maybe, like you said, that one step ahead? Or does it coincide with what we said at the start, with you know more education needed from that perspective? Yeah, I mean, I'd answer that question, is it that some people overcomplicate it in two ways? Yes, it's overcomplicated when you're talking about a injury or injuries that have a very low severity, you know, like three to four week injuries. You know, injuries in that that severity for me, it's progress along the continuum and then return to play and along the way, identify, you know, if there's anything that's a risk factor that needs to be addressed and changed in that three to four week period, or as an ongoing strategy that needs to be worked on once they have returned to training and play. Um, however, in a more complicated and severe injury, like an ACL, um, no, I don't think we complicate it um, in that that type of an injury or whether it's a grade three hamstring injury, you know, we do need to be really systematic and be thinking very, um, very broad in how we're preparing the injury site, but then the athlete holistically um, and addressing all underlying risk factors, um, using as an opportunity to improve physical capacities and things that may be potential weaknesses in that athlete um, using as an opportunity to improve their strengths further. Um, so, yeah, I'd answer that question very yeah, differently depending on yeah. how long we're expecting them to be out of their normal normal sport. So we've mentioned Alex. You've mentioned isometrics a couple of times. So we need to we need to tick that box as well in terms of the, the sure, specific sure. isometrics, which obviously Alex is the man when it comes to that kind of thing. But where do they fit in this? I suppose this could be the kind of bridge between the two, potentially, that resistance training theme, that strand, and the the um, the rehab running framework strand. Is that how you see run specific um, isometrics? So I see them probably as, you know, obviously they can be like this early introduction of loading um, in rehab, and, you know, someone can tolerate isometrics um, exercise, whether that's run specific isometrics or just general isometric exercises really early on in rehab. Um, and I use isometrics in rehab probably more in the way of enabling a higher frequency of loading um, in that, you know, for example, a hamstring may not be able to tolerate, you know, more than two or three good doses of eccentric work in a week, whereas isometrically, they could potentially do some isometrics every single day. Um, so you can have really high frequency of loading um, if that's what you need. And then I suppose the run specific ISOs is then using that as well, that's a tool to be a little bit more specific and relevant to the, the angles that are required in running. Um, and so that, I'd, that's where I'd probably more tailor the isometrics that I do towards those run-specific ISOs, um, whether that's a hip ISO or the ankle ISO um, in those angles. Um, and as I said, one of the goals of bringing in resistance training is having a higher rate of loading. So throughout a, a rehab, I'm going to progress along Alex's continuum of isometrics and how he describes them to go with, there might be some holding or pushing isometrics to more of the switching type isometric where the rate of loading is going up. Do you think in terms of isometrics, 
they in rehab they're often seen as that that lower end and then it kind of dissipates to to what your traditional strength training whereas actually there is potential to to keep that like you say with alex's framework throughout the whole rehab yeah yeah there's definitely that scope to keep it um you know i'm not sure what what others are doing whether they're just pulling them out pulling isometrics out early um because someone's returned to like normal strength and conditioning um but yeah there is a hell of a lot of value in keeping them in and progressing them further at the back ends of rehab where you're also stressing them with their on-field running demands um, and potentially i suppose filling up their bucket of capacity for the day in that in their injured tissue or just generally for what they can tolerate in the in a day um, and isometrics can be well you can get a really high level stimulus in terms of force output but with a really low mechanical cost um, and you can do that quite frequently as i said so yeah i think they can be you know very utilized at the back end of rehab final question on that on isometrics when it comes to a hamstring how would that isometric i know you mentioned about alex's framework there but how would that then isometrics progress very quickly before i let you go because i know you've got to uh got to shoot yeah um so i suppose you know isometrically would be like a, a simple hamstring bridge isometric with a, a bent knee position um so then progressing to a straighter angle um and to i suppose alex's entry hip isometric hold um and so the way I would progress that initially would be, okay, it's, we're doing this exercise, but the duration of the holds may be lower. They might only be a five-second hold initially or a 10-second hold. Um, and then I'll progress and say, well, the next session, you tolerate that. Let's now do a 15, 20-second hold and, and obviously multiple sets. Um, the next progression might be add a little bit of load to that movement. And let's put a 5-kilo, 10-kilo plate across the hips. Um, then once they can handle a little bit of load in that, that holding isometric, then moving towards not a true switch, um, but I suppose a, like a switch where there's a period of both feet as a base of support and then a transition off. Um, so there's a change in, you know, an increase in the rate of loading there and, but it's not a true switch. Then progressing to a true switch where the feet, there is a period where there's no foot um being a base of support is a true switch and a really quick um contraction and development of force to maintain that that hip hold position um and then once we're probably at that point with a switching isometric that's probably the level that i would take them to for for a hamstring injury superb right and i'm i'm pushing it for you to uh for you to shoot off but Simon, thank you very, thank you very much for that. Like I say, anyone that hasn't checked out the article, make sure you do because top top five, top five potential top three. I haven't looked, I haven't looked recently. But um, if anyone wants to catch up with anything that you've got going on, are you a social media guy or a little bit? I'm not. A, I, I am, um, but okay. I'm also not. Um, okay. So I, I'm probably best contacted on Twitter. Yeah. Um, and as you've asked that question, I've realised I. I didn't even look to see what my Twitter Twitter handle is, um, so I'll look it up now. Is it Simon um, K. Harry's? N- no, no, I think it's my I think it's my last name. Yeah, it's it's Harry's underscore Simon. Is it? Okay. So it's H A H A double R I E S underscore Simon. Yeah. Nice. Um, that's probably the got, best. Don't know where I've got that from. Mine. Oh, Maybe that's I'm my, tag- my I'm email. Oh, is it? Okay. Or or my Instagram. <laughs> give it um, out. Oh, is it? Okay. Fair enough. Yeah. I'm, not, I'm glad I'm not just making that up, but yeah. Yeah. So, no, I, I mean, I need to be better at social media and, and putting my thoughts out there and interacting in that space. But, you know, I, I'm not as savvy at it as Alex is. <laughs> Let's put it that way. <laughs> no, that's good. Right. Thank you very much for giving me an hour of your time in uh this morning for well this morning for you this evening for me and I'll, I'll let you crack on but really appreciate it simon keep the good work and uh yeah thanks again it's been a pleasure rob thank you cheers mate thanks for tuning in to this episode of the pacey performance podcast big thanks to simon for giving up his time and joining me for episode number 390 also big thanks to hawking dynamics fusion sport 
Omega Wave, Hytro and Play for sponsoring this episode today. The podcast could not run in its current form without these guys, so I really, really do appreciate all their support.